only in Jeff Styles America. Hey folks, and welcome back to Fred the Podcast, fredpodcast.com. Jeff Styles with a Y, your host, and I know it's been a long time since I have done a, a generic podcast on just something that interested me. Um, we did, of course, the last episode in Jeff Styles America um, last week, but uh, I've been actually very sick, and it took me uh, three ER visits to even figure out what the deal was and what the problem was, and now I'm dealing with it, and I feel much better. And I do apologize to everybody out there who has uh, subscribed and paid and shown support, and I will try not to leave you hanging again. And we're going to be talking about survival today. Survival. Um, it's, it's, it was a great Moody Blues song, Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, and, uh, you know, great movies, Man in the Wilderness. Uh, what what they call the version of Man in the Wilderness with Leonardo DiCaprio, The Revenant? I mean, survival is, is important. Jeremiah Johnson. And um, I have one of the experts in outdoor survival. We'll be talking about urban survival, too. Outdoor survival, Kevin Estella. Uh, who is the author of 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. Kevin, thank you very much. And uh, doing this by phone today, you're in Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I'm located here in Connecticut right now. And... uh, what got you into the, he's the author of 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. I want to make sure everybody understands that. Uh, we'll give him a chance to plug his his wares here in just a second. Um, what, what got you into this whole business? What brought you into the woods and and, and, and started the fire underneath your uh, your pot, your, your, your green stick uh, grill or whatever for survival? So when I was a little kid, my, my father was obviously my role model, my idol. Uh, my dad grew up in the Philippines during World War II. Uh, in 1941, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded the Philippines, and they occupied it for a number of years. And it was at that time that my grandfather moved uh, the family into the jungle, and they lived there from 1941 until 1945. So as a little kid, I would hear these stories of my dad living in the jungle, hunting, fishing, building shelters, building fires and whatnot, and I wanted to do things with my dad you know, that he did because I found it really interesting. So as a little kid, I heard those stories. That's really what got me going. That's when I was interested in, in hiking for the first time. And uh, once I learned how to read, I started picking up survival manuals. Uh, not really your typical thing a, as a, you know, a little kid would read, but I found myself very intrigued by them. Uh, after a number of years, I started working as a canoeing and kayaking instructor. So I was always out in the outdoors. Uh, in addition to loving it, I was, I was working in it. Um, took a number of classes with the Eastern Mountain Sports Climbing School. Decided to formalize my outdoors education with the Maine Primitive Skills School, Jack Mountain Bushcraft. And I eventually met my uh, mentor, Marty Simon, who was the owner of the Wilderness Learning Center. And I started teaching there as their lead instructor from 2007 to 2012. Started my company in 2011, been writing magazine articles, over 130 to date, uh, been traveling and training all around the country, and you know, uh, including parts of Scandinavia and South America. Um, you know, been doing product testing, product reviews, and I recently finished my first full book. So it's been, it's been a nonstop you know, roller coaster ride that's been a lot of fun for, for many decades. Everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the 
That's a much more interesting story than mine as far as being an outdoorsman and somewhat of, of a prepper and try to be, you know, prepared for things when I go on adventures. We just wanted to go a hunting and a camping and a fishing. That was that was pretty much my story. So you, you have a better story to begin with, without a doubt. Um, your book, uh, I pointed this out uh, to somebody, the most effective wilderness know-how in fire making, knife work, navigation, shelter, food, and more. I think most people would understand fire making, navigation, shelter, food, and all that stuff. But knife work, that I don't think most people think about that. That's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people, they think when they, they see a knife, oh, it just cuts. Well, cuts how? <laughs> you know, there, there's so many different ways you can use a knife. You can slice with it. You can chop with it. You can tip uh, drill, which isn't actually drilling. It's cutting in a particular way. Um, you can use your knife in, in so many different ways uh, to improve your survival situation, to improve your survivability. So, you know, what I really wanted to focus on with that book was getting people skilled and learning how to uh, level up with their skill sets. So that's why the book isn't just about here's a great gear list and you can have all this gear because just having gear isn't readiness. You know, having the skill set is part of awareness and, and that brings you closer and closer to being ready every single day. And awareness is the number one tool that you need to survive in your opinion. Uh, I would say readiness, but awareness is a component of, of uh, readiness. So um, the... I'm just looking here at the, the, the easy to read. This is, this is a very easy to read book. It's a quick read. You could study it like the Bible, uh, or you could read it over you know, the course of a day. Um, but just, you also got to broke out into very nice illustrations and photographs and things of that nature that sort of make it easy to understand. Here's right here, page 16, 17. Um, here's the chart, the 10 essential needs. I'll run through them, and maybe you come back to anything that you think is uh, very important. Number one, cutting needs, pocket knife, folding saw, back knife, uh, things of that nature. Fire starting needs, everybody's obviously a lighter, uh, home, tender, a uh, ferro rod, we'll talk about that. Hydration needs, canteen cup, any kinds of purification, multiple kinds. Shelter uh, woods, uh, shelter needs, clothing, tarp, sleeping bags, ground pad, signaling needs, phone, mirror, whistle, trauma first aid needs, that goes without any explainage needed, I don't think, cordage binding needs, definitely come back to that, navigation needs, map and compass, illumination needs, flashlight, headlamp, glow sticks, food and food gathering needs, fishing kit, 22 firearm, and that makes sense. Obviously, you've got to eat, so you got to either fish or hunt and uh so let's drop back for a second the i don't think people most people know when you're talking about starting a fire what a ferro rod is sure um so a ferro rod is a it's a some people refer to it as a metal match and the british will tend to call it a, a flint stick um, but in reality a flint is actually a a stone when used in conjunction with steel creates flint and steel, flint and steel fire starting. 
Uh, ferro rod's a combination of different metals and, and you know, ferrous uh, materials that, when scraped vigorously, create a spark in excess of 5,000 degrees. And pound for pound, it's one of the best fire starters you're going to find for creating a spark-based fire. So it's water-resistant. Uh, the only drawback is that it's uh, not a, the most durable item that you're going to carry. I mean, if you were to drop it on a paint pavement, it might crack. Or oh, if you just yeah, you strike it the wrong way. Right, right. So you want to scrape it, not not strike it. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of the greatest tools that you can carry in the great outdoors. Uh, it's not only good for fire starting, but you can use it for signaling at night. Uh, you can use it for a quick light if you just need to quickly illuminate your area. Um, it's a fantastic tool. I never leave home without one. Uh, all right. Uh, cordage binding. A lot of folks don't know what that means. First of all, uh, duct tape, that, that's its own category. Uh, but, but paracord, um, what, what is cordage and, and what, what does the binding need? Uh, cordage is just a fancy word for, for rope, string, anything that's long, strong, and flexible that can be used to tie knots in or, or, or tie hitches with. Um, you know, cordage could be as simple as taking a garbage bag, twisting it so it becomes really tight, and then tying a knot with that twisted garbage bag. I mean, that becomes a makeshift piece of cordage. Um, duct tape is fantastic. Wire is fantastic. Um, it's one of those, those things that when you walk through the woods and you find, you know, discarded fishing line on a riverbank, you pocket it. You know, not just because you want to protect the environment, but you never know when you'll need that cordage. And I think second to fire making, cordage making is one of the hardest skills to, to really master in the great outdoors. Actually making your own cord. Correct. Yeah, Kevin, didn't you have a... This is uh, Richard Carmack the, uh, over at RMJ USA, and I wanted him to step in here with us too. The, Kevin's got a video showing how to make cordage or twine out of plastic bottles, found plastic bottles, which I found very fascinating. I, I found zip ties to be one of the great inventions, too. Yeah, and the best zip ties are the ones that the TSA tend to leave on your bag when you have a declared firearm. Huh. <laughs> you know, I tend to cut them and, and save them uh, just because those things are pretty darn strong. Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, you, you'll see all the time now police and certainly bad guys in movies, that's what they use to handcuff you with. Now, we talked about uh, knife work, and obviously RMJ USA, Richard, you can speak to this. Um, you know, having a good chopping tool, uh, obviously people think of tomahawks and, and machetes and things of that nature usually as weapons, but they're invaluable. They're invaluable tools. They can be, and knowing how to use them is very important. Kevin and I were working on a uh, top five things to consider when getting a blade, and I mentioned to him about cutting and Kevin started going off okay what are you cutting are you cutting rounds are you making uh, uh, fire tender and, and I'm just I six all the different things that Kevin started throwing out of the, the uses. So you've got very uh, focused used tools, and then you've got tools that can be very uh, general. And uh, you've got to 
kind of pick your poison. Are you you're going to be single use or are you going to be multiple use because you don't know exactly what you're going to be doing. And you said earlier, how, how, how are you cutting? And I said, away from yourself, away from yourself. That's it'd be a good way to really just end your trip uh, very quickly. I'm looking at the back of the book. There's a photograph of what looks like you've taken a, a blade and have created a bird's nest out of just tiny, tiny, tiny little shavings. Is that supposed to be for fire starter? Correct. That's, you know, those are called fuzz sticks. And if you look at any bushcraft page on Instagram or Facebook or you pick up, pick up a bushcraft magazine, you're going to see guys testing their knife skills. Um, and that's creating a fuzz stick. Uh, traditionally, fuzz sticks were left behind in Scandinavia. If you were to enter someone's cabin uh, in an emergency, you'd find fuzz sticks and you'd find a, a box of matches with a, with a single match sticking out. And it was meant to be in an emergency situation, you leave it behind, kind of like a little bit of good karma that hopefully never has to ever get paid back to you. Um, so fuzz sticks are a great way of, of practicing your knife skill, the control that you have with your blade, um, but it's also a way of turning a single stick into a one-stick fire. And I was also uh, checking out here, just uh, there's there's so many things that this, this book is really a must-have for anybody who thinks they're going to go into the outdoors you might want to go into the outdoors, and uh, I guess that's everybody probably wants to, um, but we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, there was one way of making a fire I, I mentioned to you earlier in uh, uh, our relationship. I, I knew about half of this stuff. Half of this stuff came as a surprise to me, but you know, I, somebody mentioned to me a while back that the lint from your dryer would make a great fire starter. Now, I don't know that I carry around dryer lint, but you'd put, put a little petroleum jelly on there and just a little ball of lint, and it, it will go up like nobody's business. But the one I got, I got a kick out of was you could just take the battery out of your flashlight, and you've had a little piece of steel wool. I mean, you can just attach both ends, and it makes up, it, it starts to glow. It heats up. Right. So, so to the point about the dryer lint, just make sure that your dryer is filled with uh, all cotton. Uh, a lot of people wear wicking synthetic shirts, and that will just melt. It won't absorb the, the petroleum jelly. So if you have like a whole batch of towels that you're doing, that's going to create the best dryer lint that you're going to then put with the petroleum jelly. I don't think you have any control over say, what well, goes oh, in the Why are you carrying steel wool around? Who carries steel wool? Well, if you are you know, taking care of your tools, steel wool works fantastic for removing rust. Uh, surface rust on your blade so you know it's absolutely in my kit and uh, you know it that is a very very last minute um, you know emergency fire starter uh, if you lose everything else which hopefully it never gets there here, here is what I was going to get to is uh, I think most people want to go into the woods they want to have adventures um, the thing that stops them is fear or just unfamiliarity well, you can't get familiar until you do it, so we got to deal with the fear. Be prepared, and this book and and others like it, and and Kevin's website, and, and it's it's easy to get started these days. And I think people just need to go ahead and take that first step. And um, I don't know what you what do you say to convince them to do that? I think if you drag somebody into the woods, they'll either enjoy it, or more than likely they'll over prepare. And end up, you know, being foot sore and being miserable. Uh, how do you get somebody to be okay? I'm going to do this. 
So one of the things that you can do to get people into the woods is you want to you want to talk to them from a successful standpoint. You don't want to build on fear. You don't want to build on survival because a survival situation means that an emergency situation wasn't resolved and now it's really gone south. It's it's turned sideways. You've probably screwed so, up. I'm sorry. You've probably screwed up. Yes, agreed. Agreed. So one of the things that you can do is start with little victories, right? If you can get a person to throw a Swiss Army knife and a lighter in their pocket every single day and just say, look, you may need it, just carry it, right? It's better to have it uh, and not need it than need it and not have it. Then you've already won one little victory. And then you build on the next victory. You say to them next time you see them, hey, do you have that knife? Or, hey, let's build a fire here in this, in this park for this barbecue grill. Do you have that lighter? And once you, you show someone the value of being prepared, right, the, the sense of, of worth that you have when you're a useful member uh, within a, a small group, then maybe you build a little bit more and you say, hey, maybe you should carry this too. Maybe you should learn this skill. Um, I'm a firm believer in taking people places where it's comfortable and always working from success backwards to failure. So you don't want to give someone a, a, a bow drill challenge telling them, hey, you're going to go make a friction fire off the land. And there's a reason why in my book I don't put friction fire at all until the very end of the chapter because I want people to experience success before they experience Anybody failure. Anybody who's going to know. I, I swear to God I'll lay down and die before I do a bow drill. Um, now, <laughs> I, I was going to say I'm proud of myself. My grandfather told me a long time ago when I was maybe 12 years old, he didn't have any use for a man that didn't carry a pocket knife, and he gave me one of his. And it's been in my, there's been a, a pocket knife in my pocket ever since. And the other thing was a lighter. And I have to say, I've rubbed off on Richard. The one vice I never picked up was, was smoking. How I didn't do it, I don't know, because I did everything else. Uh, but I've always had a lighter. It has made people question me before, but now Richard, he says he carries one too. Yeah, I heard Jeff talking one day, years ago, I guess, uh, about that lighter in the pocket. And I've had the same light. I guess I need to check it. Make sure, <laughs> make sure it still works. <laughs> but you know, I mean, th these are things that you don't, you don't, if you don't need them, fine. They don't, they don't weigh anything. Now, I do have to stick my pocket knife in the mulch outside of a concert venue from time to time because I forget it's there because it becomes part of me. Uh, but other than that, um, now my, I'm going to say real quick before we let you go, Kevin, and thank you for joining me here on fredpodcast.com. And uh, you can also pick it up on jeffstylesamerica.com. Um, the, the movie Into the Wild. Uh, are they, excuse me, the book Into the Wild, which was, you know, uh, written by the same guy that wrote about the Everest, you know, disaster into thin air. But it, it was an intriguing true story about this young man who just decided he wanted to be able to live off his own wits and survival skills and uh, took off after several other adventures into the Alaskan wilderness, but he did die a miserable death. Now, one of the things that he was very proficient at, and I have never been, was edible plants. That ended up costing him his life because he was eating a particular type of seed, but it was the wrong. It looked very much like the right type of seed, but he was actually eating a seed that was robbing him of nutrients. Mm -hmm. And he ended up dying on a bus. Watch the movie version. I think Robert Redford directed it. It's got an Eddie Vedder soundtrack. It's fantastic. But I've never been very good, other than blueberries and blackberries, edible plants. So uh, what about what about edible I, plants? I just, I mean, that's, I can't identify trees. I can okay. identify birds to some degree. But plants, it's just been a weak point of mine. 
I, I'm not, you know, I, I saw Yule Gibbons said, do you know many parts of the pine tree are edible? Uh, well, I don't know which part, and I, I certainly don't know what green to pick and put in my mouth. Uh, how, do you, how do you get that skill? Okay, so, so this is going to come, you know, straight from, from, you know, the words of Marty Simon. This is straight from my mentor through me to you. And Marty is the foremost plant expert in this country. There's no doubt about it. He, George Hedgepath, um, you know, those are the two guys that I consider, you know, the, the cream of the crop when it comes to edible plants. First thing Marty is going to tell you is that he's never seen an edible plant run away from anyone. And, you know, hunting and fishing and trapping, they're very exciting because you're catching something. You're catching something that's living and you get to, to eat it. But animals get away. Plants don't. And I really, truly believe that those that are able to commit their, their memory and their knowledge to learning plants are going to be the true survivors. When you first start off learning plants, everything looks green, right? But then you start noticing little, little details in the plants, right? Do the plants have square stems, identifying that they're, that they're mint? Uh, do the plants have luscious leaves, you know, uh, leaves that are succulent, kind of like live forever? Um, are the leaves opposite, right? Or do the does the plant grow in a, uh, a whirl, right? There are so many little things that you start noticing about plants that make them no longer all look green. And there's a few hard rules that you can always remember, and these are great for your listeners. Number one, if it smells like garlic or if it smells like onions, it is edible, right? So that will include wild onion. That will include garlic mustard. Okay, that will include a, a number of plants. If it smells like garlic or if it smells like onion, it's edible. Down there we have a plant that grows out in the woods and the fields. Looks something like a turnip green. Everybody calls it poke salad. Poke salad. Another is any segmented berry is edible as long as it's ripe. Right? So that includes cloudberry, salmonberry, uh, partridge, I'm sorry, not partridge berry, cloudberry, salmonberry, um, you know, blackberry, raspberry. If it has a segmented berry, it's all edible. Another is that if it has a crown, like a blueberry or a rose hip, it's yeah. also edible. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If people want to learn plants, they need to get with a local expert, or they need to uh, pick up a number of books, not just one. And as a writer, I'm going to tell you that you can't just rely on one book. You need to have multiple sources, because some sources have line drawing, some sources have photos, and you need to cross-reference them, because... Chris McCandless, the guy from Into the Wild, he didn't cross-reference anything. He went off of memory. And there's an old, old quote, and it's the faintest thing is better than the strongest memory. So having those references at hand, make sure that you, you don't get sick, you don't get injured when you're trying to learn something so valuable as edible plants. Yeah, I was going to say, I would recognize poke salad, and I would recognize, you know, most nuts, and that would be just about it. And... Uh, I, I'm, you've, I already know 100% more than I did before, uh, just what you just said. So, um, I, I was, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us on fredpodcast.com. And, Richard, thank you for swinging by and introducing me to Kevin. Thank you. And uh, I just appreciate it very much. Good luck to you and everything you do. And I know you got a, a kind of a new series that's going to be coming out pretty soon about what if I want to take a hike? What if I want to do this? And you'll be able to give them specific you know, here's what you need to do. I think it's a brilliant idea. Good luck to you. And we'll be back here in just a second. I'm going to go ahead and let my commercial advertisers and folks who have supported me all this time have their say for just a moment. And we're going to talk about urban survival on fredpodcast.com. Only in Jeff Styles, America. It wouldn't be anything. 
Thanks to Kevin Estella. I want to say thanks to the folks who have been loyal and supportive of me from the very beginning of this podcasting adventure. Robin Ring, my very good friend and longtime uh, landlady, and uh, she has RC2 Realty Solutions now. RC2 Realty Solutions specializing in taking distressed properties and turning them into beautiful and functional living and working spaces. Get in touch with them on their Facebook page. Also, Tim Kelly and his staff down at Kelly Subaru, Riverfront and MLK here in downtown Chattanooga. You can go to kellysubaru.com. All kinds of 2019s in. They got great deals. Uh, these are f- vehicles that hold their value better than any other. Uh, has higher customer satisfaction ratings than any other and they do great leasing to and service work and also rmj usa uh the makers of fine blades ryan johnson my friend who's made custom knives for years and then got into the tactical business making weapons and tools for our special forces overseas and now they're moving into the world of outdoor sports and they've developed blades for every single outdoor adventure sport and they want you to use them and give them feedback so they can make them better rmj usa thanks to all of our advertisers only in jeff styles america really appreciate kevin estella talking to us today about uh, surviving in the woods and now urban survival urban survival 101 i have a retired chattanooga police officer on the line with me Uh, i have made an executive uh, fiat decision that he will remain anonymous and um, but he has spent years and years and years of his life on the rough and mean streets of chattanooga tennessee and has seen just about everything. And uh, officer, sir, thank you very much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Now, when I say urban survival, it's not like being out in the woods. You don't have to. We're not talking about you know shelter or food. I guess we could talk about food deserts and how you deal with them, but we're not going to do that today. Uh, clothing or water. We're, we're just talking about street survival, and that really comes down to situational awareness and maybe a little self-defense if things go awry. So, I mean, if you were going to just tell somebody, just Joe Sixpack or Jill Sixpack, um, an adult person who was going to stride the streets of downtown Chattaboogie at night, what would be your first and best piece of advice to give them? Trust your gut. If things wrong, if they seem wrong, they probably are, or at least be prepared for them to be. I look at the difference between urban survival and wilderness survival is, is really it's just a different set of predators, and you've got to be situationally aware of both any given urban environment is going to have any number of different areas everyone everyone knows that's local to chattanooga is growing up in this area there are certain keywords that if i say the name of a certain location you know that's not the place you want to run out of gas there are other places in front of the aquarium you'd probably be you bet you would behave in front of the aquarium a little differently than you would in the middle of the east lake courts yes. if you were to run out of gas at 3 a.m in each place and it's just a matter of, of being cognizant of, of your surroundings like we said uh, and really how to interact with the indigenous peoples of both areas. And it, it's, it's, everything is kind of shockingly obvious, but my recommendation is if, you know, as you encounter people, think of them as, as these particular woods, maintain eye contact, keep your answers in binary. I've always found that, that speaking loudly will, will draw, it draws attention and it lessens any position of superiority someone feels they have. There's always going to be someone that's willing to take advantage of you, either physically, financially, emotionally, otherwise out there to try and get money out of you to see what to see how far they can push. And you are the only one that will let them know how far you can be pushed. Obviously you want to avoid anything physical at, at any point, always. But if it does, you need to be deliberate about what you do and how you do. And I 
I recommend things. A lot of people recommend the, the crazy guns, tasers, that they, they still inappropriately call them at flea markets. Anything that requires you to be within a few feet of somebody or a few inches is not a good thing. Uh, life and death, uh, you know, a knife is, is one thing, but if, but if you have to touch them with a stun gun, you've just increased or decreased your distance, which increases your danger. I'm a huge, huge proponent of something as simple as pepper spray. They sell it everywhere. Uh, there's things to look out for in the label to see how powerful it is. But it keeps distance between you two. It's less likely to be used against you, like a gun or a knife, if it's taken from you, since most normal people aren't really willing to pull that trigger or to, or to stab somebody. Uh, but it keeps distance between you. You're more likely to use it. And if it makes any contact, it changes the, the mind of the person you're dealing with pretty much immediately. They go from thinking, what can I do to this person or get from this person, to Oh, my God, my eyes are boiling out of my head. Yeah, I mean, no, nobody takes a shot of mace or pepper spray, especially the stuff they come up, they've come up with now, in the eyes and, and is able to continue to pursue doing whatever they were doing. I don't care if they were playing chess they or they were about to whip your ass. Well, it's a great day for me to whoop somebody's ass. It's a bad day. So you better get off of my back You might get cold cocked If you cross my path Cause it's a great day For me to whoop somebody's ass You don't have that, that's why in rape defense classes The eyes are one of the most immediate I recommend throats <laughs> But a, an, an eye gouge, an eye scratch, anything like that To absolute change mind is extremely effective if it comes well, down to that. Well, let, let's uh, as, actually, as far as the pepper spray goes, I, I I recommend the pepper spray to both men and women. And in my family, I, I discourage the use of of uh, firearms. Showing it is not that effective because no, they know no, that no, it's probably not going to get used. Never brandish one; they're just going to take it from you. You just yes. you just you just gave them a reason to rob you if they didn't have one already. Um, and you, but you psychologically, do, you, you won't hesitate to use pepper spray, which is the good yeah. thing. Yeah, I was going to say most people will not pull the trigger. They they talk smack. But when it comes to a human being standing in front of them, even when they should, they will be hesitant to actually pull a trigger. And uh, I saw something the other day, and I'm going to drop back to the uh, the tourism hotspots in a second. But uh, and it was a, a woman. It was kind of a comic thing, but she actually said, it, you know, it works as good as pepper spray, and it was just seasoning salt, seasoned salt. But of course, you'd have to actually have a way to project it towards somebody and get it in their face. But she literally, it was in this scenario, a guy was sneaking up behind her, and she just had a small can of seasoning salt and just whipped it into his face. And I thought, man, that's a good idea. Yeah. But I mean, it'd be and a little bit more bulky to, to carry on. And the key to that is it's something she used, and that's a great thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the weapon that's unused that will be used against you, and reasonable and decent folks don't want to hurt another person even if they're, they're feeling threatened and very likely will be harmed. I swore we would keep this very short and sweet. I was just going to bring up two different stories. One, when uh, my wife and I, Rebecca, went to St. Louis, and we checked into a, a hotel right near the Arch, and it was night. Uh, we'd gotten there late, and we checked in and, and got our stuff in our room, and then we took off, and we were going to go to the Arch, right? It was right there. And the guy at the hotel stopped us and told us we shouldn't go, literally, to the biggest, you know, tourist draw anywhere in the Midwest. And we said, that's all right. We're grown folks. We know what to do. And uh, we got out there. And then here comes this little, um, I think they called them, 
not not security people, but some sort of city escort or you know concierge. But he was wearing a uniform, and he was on a Segway, and he literally pulled right up in front of us, and he told us, you know, there's so many things to see here in town, and and they were trying to I mean directly talk us out of going to the arch. Apparently, and this guy got pretty real with us. There were there were people that were jumping out of the bushes and grabbing folks and assaulting them and robbing them all right there in the shadow of the arch. And they were constantly working on it, but I mean, they said it, if you just go down there wandering around, you, you, you're on your own. You know, you can probably expect trouble. That's a hell of a thing. There is a presumption of safety in a civilized society. And in the heart of a city the size of St. Louis, there is certainly a presumption of safety. And it's, as a former law enforcement professional, it, it makes me sick to know that they know that that problem exists there. But they're on the outskirts warning you not to go in rather than addressing it. That said, that's, it's, that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. You would assume that, if they, like you said, one of the largest landmarks in the Midwest, not just that city, that there would be a presumption of safety, and there's not. You, you always have to, unfortunately, when you're out of your element, you've got to assume the worst. We're, we are a good-natured people, no <laughs> matter what, uh, what the narrative is today. By and large, we are, we are a civilized, decent people, but you have to assume the worst when, when you're dealing with this because it will serve you a lot better to, to assume the worst and be prepared for the worst than, than to do the opposite. Sure. Now, Broad daylight, handing out sandwiches and socks, that's one thing. But uh, a late night tour of, of somewhere like that of the homeless camps. Be prepared. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say the other one, of course, the, the old saw about just don't give yourself away. I mean, if you're walking around wearing a you know a Hawaiian shirt and you know bad shorts with dark socks and a fanny pack, you're doomed. But you know, you go to New York, <laughs> don't wander around looking up at the skyscrapers. That you're you're telling the world, I am a tourist. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you know, pick pick a place, sit down, then gaze as you want to, but don't go wandering around staring up because it's just like they're gonna go fish. Here's a fish. Um, the other, we I was in D.C. one time. There was a talk radio convention, and uh, I took off walking at night, which I do all the time. I'm a night walker. I had on my old leather cowboy hat, and I actually had on boots at that time. And uh, they they called me Tennessee up there. All these different talk radio hosts and folks in the big city. And uh, I, I was not far from the hotel, not far, far from the mall, but I came around a corner, moving at a pretty good pace, striding, and it was night of the living dead. There were people wandering about, shuffling about. I saw silhouettes in the middle of the street, and every head turned toward me. And I had a nanosecond, and I thought about turning around, and I said, well, if I turn around, they're going to know I'm scared, and it looks like a bunch of predators. At least there's going to be one or two. Somebody's probably going to come after me, and I'm wearing cowboy boots. Running is not really a good option. So I literally did what I normally do. This is, this is my behavior. Uh, if, if I'm late and I know someone is going to be angry, I show up angrier than they can possibly be. You know, I show up, damn it, I can't believe it. I've heard people just, oh, they just drive me crazy. You know, and so then it makes them shut the hell up. And it makes that problem go away. So I, I, I pulled my cap down, my hat down, and just started striding down the street going, have you seen Charlie? Dude, have you seen Charlie? Is Charlie here? And I made my way all the way down the street, and these people were going, well, who's this guy? You know, but I was angry, <laughs> and I got to the other side, and then I bolted. I took off. The next day, there's a guy from CNN sitting at my table, and I told him that story. And he goes, wait, wait, wait. He gets everybody's attention. He goes, hey, y'all check out Tennessee here. 
He went wandering down whatever street it was. He goes, dude, I wouldn't drive down that street during the day. And, uh, you know, but I mean, it, it, I basically put on a total show of confidence, arrogance, crazy. You know, you can't beat crazy. I don't know karate, but I know crazy. And it worked for me that time. And that is a perfect example of what you should have done. You did not present yourself as a target, and you distracted them. You made them stop thinking. Most people can only think about one thing at a time. There was no gum chewing on that street from the description of The Walking Dead there. Yeah. But you distracted them. So you made them think about two different things at the same time while not presenting yourself as a target. And that, that goes back to what I was saying, eye contact, loud speaking. You, you know, you be the alpha. Even if you're not an alpha, please do that. And if, and if it ultimately comes to a physical altercation, fight like your life depends on it, because it probably does. There's no rules. There's no standing back with your fist up in the air with, with a big curly mustache. Yeah. You, you fight. You go for whatever you can if you have to, if you don't have a weapon. And if you have something that can be made into a weapon, by all means, there's no rules if you, if you feel your life's in danger. Now, I was just going to say, now, real quick, we'll, we'll wrap it up fairly quickly here. Um, when it comes to, all right, I, I, nothing has worked. I crossed the street. Uh, I tried to hold my head up. I moved a little quicker. There, some somebody is shadowing me. There's there's going to be a confrontation, and uh, maybe there's a word or two. But if it gets down time, you're thinking, okay, I've got to do something. Now I know what my first move would be. My first and best move would be, and once I pull it off, it's it's probably going to work. But if it doesn't, I'm going to be in kind of trouble because I'm probably going to be sprawled on the on the the, the sidewalk or the street. Um, because my move actually it, it requires kind of getting off my feet to a degree, but it would be devastating to whoever was on the receiving end of it. I'm not going to give it up. Um, but, I mean, it, you really do need to strike first and don't stick around. Yeah, you're not going to sit there and swap punches like you're in a John Wayne movie. You need to do something that's going to de- completely debilitate the person and then get the hell away from them. What, yep. what, what do you recommend? <laughs> Standing over somebody after, if you're successful, standing over them is just going to, you're going to have a, a very upset person with even more adrenaline yeah. than you have now. Yeah, getting Muhammad, up and, and Muhammad Ali Get over out. Sonny Liston. That, yeah, he could do that. You can't. It's time to go. But I, I can, I'm finally at a, at a point as a retiree, I can, I can tell you what's easier to get to than the eyes and what's more effective is the front of someone's throat. They don't expect it, uh, whether, it's, whether it's a bladed hand or a fist or, or something in it. That has that same wonderful effect of once that once that windpipe takes a blow, they think about nothing but how much they they miss air, and they've never missed it so much in their life. And then you go front of the front of the throat is always best. And before that confrontation, fluff up like a cat, throw your arms open, get loud, and let them know that you you are crazy. Crazy is extremely effective because yeah. again, it throws them off their balance, and it shows them what you need to try and get in your mind, whether you whether you puff up like the cat or anything else that you are fully committed. You have to fully commit to saving your life. Um, no, not, no wallet's worth dying over, no cell phone's worth dying over, but be fully committed if you fight to, to, to carry it out to the end because it does depend on it. You can't beat a berserker. Any hesitation you have will be taken advantage of. Yeah, you can't beat a berserker. Uh, as far as, I mean, weapons go, if somebody doesn't want to carry a weapon per se, um, ladies, those weird combs you carry that have the long, sharp handle, Put that in your hand and put your thumb over the, you know, the, the, the front, you know, combing end of it and jab the solar plexus, the groin, the neck, obviously, as you just mentioned. Um, I mean, that, that whole thing about putting keys between your fingers, great way to break all your fingers and not inflict any real, yeah. you know, damage. Yep, a little, little scratch is going to happen there, but anything that can be made into a weapon, you know, keep, keep your eyeball for what's around you. 
there's, you know, it's 50-50. If I'm with family, I carry, but it's 50-50 because I don't like to have to think about a gun all the time, depending on where I'm at. And I don't want to live in a world where I have to all the time. However, I know I'll use it, whereas most wouldn't. But um, anything else that I've got on pocket, pen, pencils, name it, if it's, got a, if it's sharp and pointy. Just be whatever you choose to do, whether it's hands or an improvised weapon. Do it big. Be committed to using it. Be committed to surviving, and that, that's the mindset they teach cops, soldiers. That even if you're hurt, keep going. Ignore the hurt. Suck it up with it later. It'll wait on you. Eyes and keep going. Eyes, bridge of the nose, throat, obviously groin, solar plexus, uh, knees, a, 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 a scrape right down the shin, and a stomp on the top of a foot. Uh, where you would actually be yeah. able to bear weight and, and, and break bones in a foot. That, that's a fairly fair, but now you've got to be right up against them. But, I mean, uh, it's, uh, prior, you know, if you're grappling, you're grappling. But prior to that, again, eye contact, loud voices, don't make yourself appear to be a target. Uh, and it just kind of left my mind one of the better things. If someone asks you to use your phone, no. we are programmed, especially in the South, you're programmed to be not programmed to offer someone a drink. Uh, don't. You have an obligation. No. <laughs> and keep your answers binary. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. Do you, are you, are you no. nervous? No. Yes. No. <laughs> Whatever you want to say. But you have no obligation to share your phone to give someone a dollar. Pull, pull out your wallet and show them what you have in it. None of that makes sense. Don't do it. So the, the, I've, always, I've always found Southerners are more likely to, to be generous like that. Don't do it. It's my, your phone, it's your wallet. You don't have time for this. My, no. My former boss used to <laughs> you rock. You don't have to give an explanation. He used to rock back on his heels and literally get a good head start and go, no! I mean, their hair would blow back like the old Maxell commercial. And, uh, you know, when I moved downtown, I, you know, I realized that is what was necessary with some of the aggressive panhandlers. And, and it got to where they would move across the street to stay away from me. Um, you know, if I saw, exactly. if I saw somebody who was in need, I would actually help them out. But I mean, people just coming up and strong arming you and just assuming that you're going to give them money. Hell, I had a guy come up one time. I swear to God, downtown, I was walking and he comes up and goes, Hey, cracker, give me a dollar. I went, did you just call me cracker? He goes, no, man, I called you brother. And he kind of started laughing. I was, listen, everybody, this guy, he just asked me for a dollar and called me a cracker. He took off running, you know? So, I mean, they, they, <laughs> they, they got to where they stayed away from me. And it's just really, it was just nothing but just vocal command, like you said, and just presence of mind. A little, you know, crazy look in the eye, a loud no, and then, you know, do I'm local, essay, and just go off, you know. I mean, that, that, that works, but if it comes down time to it, you got to be brutal. you got to go crab mog, you know. And at the time, it's going to keep you out of some, it'll, it'll, nine times out of ten, being loud, being an alpha, being crazy will, will keep you out of trouble. And the side benefit is you get a great story later for when it is funny. Sure. And final question, I will let you go. Um, Obviously, we've also been taught that profiling is bad, it's evil. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Captain Calloway here in town who was an African-American officer uh, who had been on the streets for years and years, and he was the only one who would come talk to me on talk radio about the growing gang problem that we had. And obviously, trouble can come from anywhere. It can come from a big, hairy redneck. It can come from somebody dressed up like a businessman. Um, But, I mean generally we're dealing when you're talking about downtown urban populations and those who prey on on those who are not from there and and he said you better be profiling you better be profiling you're an idiot if you're not because there are people out there they're dying to do dirt to you and you better see them coming people make money off of racial profiling accusations those are people on tv those are politicians those are activists whatever that actually means 
I've had to make this this defense and this explanation. It's not a defense. It's an explanation a thousand times if I've done it once. There is a difference between racial profiling and criminal profiling. There's a difference between sure. age profiling, sexual profiling, and criminal profiling. All of these tips it's, are for... Crime doesn't know a skin color. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't know geography. If it looks like a criminal, it's probably a criminal. And it's okay to keep that in your head to keep you safe. And if you're on TV or talking around the water cooler, then you can not talk about it. But when you're alone in a park after hours and say this, you are 100% correct to criminal profile people that look like whatever you perceive to be a criminal. You trust your instinct, as you said. Well, I, uh, sir, officer, thank you very much. I will. Um, I appreciate you, and I appreciate your service. I know you've put in long years out there slugging away, and uh, I admire you very much for it. I'm going to keep you anonymous because I think it's probably best uh, for you because— I'm sort of still radioactive right now with a lot of the constabulary around here, unfortunately, uh, through no fault of my own. But uh, that's just the way it is. But I appreciate your time today very much. Anytime. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You know that old trees just grow stronger and old rivers grow wilder. Just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in there And while we're at it, I just thought maybe we'd do just a little tad of relationship survival. How to survive a long-term relationship, a relationship with another human being. And so I have a friend of mine, an older friend of mine, a senior seasoned citizen, and it's uh, Colonel J.C. Whitney III. He is 101 years old. He is still married to his high school sweetheart. And I just wanted to ask him, what is the secret to a long and happy marriage? Whatever she says... Even if she's wrong, and she ain't right at all, you just agree. She's always right, and you'll be all right. Thank you, Colonel. Thank you very much. That's it for today's Fred Podcast. Mm-hmm.